Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for listening to this latest episode of my podcast. We'll be taking a look at the reopening of nightlife in New York City and across the pond in England with my good friend Colleen Cosmo Murphy. Also, we'll talk about that most irritating form of communication, the robocall. But first, I have to admit I'm totally confused about where we are with the coronavirus. It's one thing for politicians to change course or do U-turns for the purposes of political expediency. When it comes to COVID-19, it's almost become expected. Yet here we have the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reversing course on mask wearing. The scary thing is that the CDC changed its guidance on fully vaccinated people. It previously said there was no need for those who have had both jabs to wear masks in public indoor spaces. Now it says where infection rates have soared, people should in fact wear masks indoors, even if vaccinated. The problem? It appears to be the Delta variant, which is highly transmissible, even if symptoms aren't as bad. Of course, there's really only one problem, or maybe one of many. People who oppose the vaccines are now able to say, what's the use of them if they cannot keep people safe? The CDC says their change, of course, is due to new science. Okay, fine. I mean, I'm willing to buy that rather than some of the prevarications that we hear from politicians. But they're now saying people who are vaccinated should be tested after coming into contact with someone who has COVID, whether they show symptoms or not. And then along comes President Joe Biden, mandating federal workers get vaccinated or get tested. And then he proposes giving late vaxxers a $100 reward. Am I the only one who's confused? Layer the CDC guidance with orders from the governors of certain states preventing businesses and schools from requiring mask wearing. And in several states, including Florida, those orders are coming in the face of rapidly increasing infection rates. So I have to ask myself, what are people supposed to do? When it comes to vaccines, there are mixed messages. Biden says they're highly effective at saving lives and preventing severe illness. And the numbers, in fact, bear him out. And by the way, he says that to include the Delta variant. Yet a new CDC study of a virus outbreak in Massachusetts showed 74% of people contracting COVID were double vaccinated there. That's right, double vaccinated. Now, we have to kind of press pause for a second and understand that the media's coverage of this latest situation up in Massachusetts has actually been roundly savaged as irresponsible reporting. Many have pointed out that the so-called breakthrough infections, those are breakthrough infections that happen in people who are double vaccinated, double vaccinated, that those infections were expected. And of course, the national totals, and this is important to keep in mind, 125,682 cases of people who are double vaccinated contracting COVID out of 164.2 million people vaccinated since January. Cause for alarm? It's true 
that there is some cause for alarm if you read the headlines and don't dig too deep. My question is, is this. If these cases were expected, were they expected by the general public? And the general public, who have, in the last, what, three, four days, have been receiving scores of mixed messages, both on the federal scientific level and on the local political gubernatorial level in many states, my answer to that would be maybe those expectations were not prevalent in the general public. Do these headlines create panic in the general public? I say perhaps. I would guess they give cover to people who would paint the vaccines as ineffective. Now, it's time to step back from all this for a minute. There are a few things to consider. Even though Joe Biden's $100 proposal means well, it's not smart. Certainly not smart politically. He's asking cities and states to foot the bill, and his political enemies are sure to savage him for it. They savage him for everything else. The real question is how you create incentives for people to get vaccinated, while at the same time encouraging people to wear masks, whether it be indoors or out. It's not an easy task. Certainly not an easy task for scientists, and certainly not an easy task for politicians. And the news that the double vaccinated can still get infected as well as spread it to others creates another political minefield, no matter how small the real numbers, in fact, are. Up until now, I've been comfortable saying I follow the science. But just where is the science? I understand that this virus started out being hard to understand and hard to track. I also know that new infections are rising fastest in states with the fewest vaccinated residents. And by the way, we've seen in media, in addition to what they may call irresponsible reporting about infections among the vaccinated, we've also seen, at least I have, a number of stories of people who did not get vaccinated and now regret it because they're on a respirator in a hospital. So there is that to consider as well. The best I can hope for is this. I wear a mask in any indoor setting. That includes shops, restaurants, until I get ready to eat, public transit, the whole nine. The only time I really don't wear a mask outdoors is when I'm biking because I'm moving and I'm not coming in contact with people for any great length of time. I also try to stay inside as often as I can. I have a lovely new sound system and enough music to last more than one lifetime. Despite all the confusion, despite all the chaos, I'm good. Up next, nightlife is back both in Europe and the US, but is it back to stay and has it changed since the pandemic? We'll talk to famed radio and club DJ Colleen Cosmo Murphy, who just did her first outdoor live gig in 18 months. Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Hi, this is Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and you're listening to The Intersection with Mark Riley.
My guest is an iconic disc jockey, both in radio and in clubs. She's the host of Classic Album Sundays and Balearic Breakfast. And Classic Album Sundays, I forgot what network it's on, but I know Balearic Breakfast is on Worldwide FM. A pleasure to welcome to our microphones, Ms. Colleen Cosmo Murphy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Let me start out by asking you, uh, both in the U.S. and here in England, we've started to see little by little, bit by bit, nightlife start to open up. What has that meant to you who haven't been able to really work uh, in, you know, before a live audience for a long time? What does it mean to you? And have you seen any changes? Uh, I know it's early, but have you seen any changes in the way people are partying these days? Well, of course, I'm over the moon to be playing to people that can actually dance. We, there were some ways to get around it earlier on, outdoor kind of street feast festival type things where people were seated. They had to stay near their tape at their tables. It was table service. And then once they left their table, they had to use a mask, but they couldn't dance. And if they did dance, they were being like told to sit down. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a few of those, but it was still lovely to actually play music for people just to see them because I've been broadcasting live every single week since this pandemic started. So it was nice to actually see people dancing, but it was an interesting way to get around it. Of course, those restrictions lifted on uh, in July. One thing that venues and festivals are doing is you have to take these rapid flow tests, mm -hmm. these, these lateral flow tests, I should say, uh, to test for coronavirus before going on site, which I fully support. Um, because the Delta variant in both the US and the UK is still making things very difficult and making it likely that we'll see a third, possibly fourth wave of this virus. So I don't think it's over yet. Sure. You know, our government here in the UK has promised that we aren't going back into a lockdown. I find that difficult to believe. And all the DJs I know are saying, get as much work in as you can, because we feel in October, that there will be more restrictions and lockdowns for indoor entertainment uh, because our government here in the UK, I wouldn't, it's not that they opened up too early because I fully support the opening up. It's just the, the not having any guide, any real restrictions. So I still wear a mask when I go on public transport. I, I still wear I. a mask. Yeah, as I still wear a mask when I go into a shop or a public venue just to protect other people as well. I've never shown a symptom, you know, ever. Yeah. And I'm double vaccinated, but I, I still do that because I could be a carrier or for whatever reason. Uh, it's, it's as much to protect other people as myself and my family. Um, but I feel that the, our government should have still required masks in these public places indoors for the time being, especially while this Delta variant is raging. If we didn't have a Delta variant, I think it'd be a different story. Sure. So I feel that's really going to impact nightlife. And, you know, both the conservative governments in, in, in both New York and here in the UK have never liked nightlife very much anyways. <laughs> Let's get into that for a second, because sure. you're right. There's a striking parallel between conservative governments here in the UK mm -hmm. and conservative governments, not just in New York, but across the country, mm -hmm. there always seems to be this animosity toward nightlife, toward people dancing. Why do you think that is? Well, I think first of all, nightlife, of course, is a very free space. 
a space where you have people who are, you know, dancing and celebrating life, but with really progressive values and conservative values are not usually in line with progressive values. I mean, I look back to this magic year of 1994, when there's this real synchronistic acts against underground club culture and rave culture between the governments here in the UK and also in New York City. So this is the year in New York City that Mayor Giuliani takes office as, as mayor. And he invokes this ancient New York cabaret law which from 1926 that banned singing and dancing in public venues without a specific license to do so. So that happens in 1994. And that really impacted my livelihood at the time because I was DJing all over and uh, trying to make a living, um, scraping, just scraping by. And I remember we had to have like ambient records next to us in case we saw an undercover come in, you know, and have to like throw on a different record over here. There was a much bigger, bigger act as the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994, which was introduced during Tory leader John Major's government. And it prohibited a gathering of 20 people or more in public in which music was being played that included the sounds characterized by a succession of beats. House music. So, what? yes, yes. This I, I, is, this wait a minute. Is wait. It. This Are you is trying criminal- to tell me? The, the government yeah. could define mm-hmm. and, and and was able to discern uh, in a in, in a, a milieu that they weren't really familiar with or cared much about, but they said like so many beats and you're in trouble. Yeah, succession of repetitive beats, basically. Basically, the rave culture started to take off here in the late 1980s, and it was liberating. I mean, the UK wasn't the best place to live at that point in time. It was quite depressing, you know? I Mm -hmm. mean, Thatcherism had wreaked havoc, especially in the North. So there were a lot of abandoned warehouses where raves would take place that weren't necessarily licensed. So I I guess I have to say they were illegal, but there were people trying to forge their own way. People that were really ignored by the the, um, conservative Tory government. You know, people whose livelihoods, whose parents' livelihoods have been taken away. It was a depressing place here in the UK for many people. And the whole rave movement in the late 80s and the early 90s really created people. First of all, drew all these different types of people together, especially people from different class backgrounds and racial backgrounds and sexual orientation. Um, And it also was the biggest youth movement here in the UK. It, it was incredible. So you had all these free parties. People are driving around the 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 M25, which goes around London, putting signs in their cars, you know, advertising the next rave. Hey, go to this stop. Uh, there was this massive rave called Castle Morton Common Festival in 1992 that was, I think, the pinnacle of this. You have people traveling, almost like modern day deadheads. You know, they were the traveler community. They were going to rave to rave or throwing their own raves. It was a real DIY movement. It had a lot of punk values in there as well. And the, the, the Tory government didn't like that one bit. Here you are, you have people that have, you're trying to pursue kind of an idealistic way of life for the most part. Of course, there's people that take advantage of that and become sure. the bad examples that the Tory government likes to point to as being, as being the defining example of the movement, but it's not. But see, here's some of the civil liberties they actually took away. So they banned the rights of 20 people or more to gather and in which 
music with a succession of repetitive beats was being played. So that's house music. But they also took away different civil, civil liberties. They changed the right to silence, allowing law authorities to in, uh, make inferences if somebody decided to remain silent. They took, uh, they had more rights to take and retain different intimate body samples. They increased police powers of unsupervised stop and search. All these things were taken away in 1994. Yeah, yeah. So you have Giuliani over in New York City doing very similar yeah. things, you know, yeah. making Times Square <laughs> Disney World and, you know, not allow it and, and invoking this cab ancient cabaret uh, law license. Um, By the way, that cabaret license was revoked, uh, repealed. It, yeah, it was yeah. repealed recently. But what's interesting is that cabaret law was used to keep Billie Holiday from singing in That's almost right. any club in New York City because she had a drug conviction. Exactly. They did that. Uh, was, I think it was a few. I think Salonius Monk had the same. Salonius Monk had a yeah, similar problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it really suppressed certain types of music. And, yeah, well, you know, African American uh, <laughs> music, you know, yeah, jazz. Yeah. I mean, a load of them. I, I think Salonius Monk had a similar problem for. I think it was a marijuana charge. Yeah. Uh, Billy yeah. Holiday, of course. Um, yeah, it it was used to. It's used to suppress suppress people, suppress minority groups, suppress kind of uh, forward thinking, um, idealistic liberal groups as well. So yeah, people is, who really wanted a certain level of freedom mm -hmm. uh, in a space, not bothering anybody, not robbing anybody, just wanting that freedom. And, and I think we both know what that was about. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you had governments on both sides of the pond here uh, deciding that people should not have that freedom. But now, you know, let's fast forward to 2021. Are you at all nervous? Because I know that there have been down in the southern part of England, down here by Brighton, there have been a number of uh, raves that have been raided and people have gotten arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's interesting is at the same time that's going on, licensed gatherings, have gone on almost without a hitch, except the last one, uh, the On the Beach Festival, I think the last day was rained out. Yeah. But other than that, it's like people are saying, well, wait a minute, is it just a matter of licensing? Is it just a matter of whose palms you grease in order to be able to do something legally versus something that is not authorized or something that's illegal? Um, and, and what it does, I think, is sort of uh, attach an aura of illegality to nightlife, yeah. you know, because people outside of, of, of certain scenes, they don't know the difference between uh, an illegal rave and a legal party on the beach with Carl Cox. They don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it takes a lot of money to do a legal rave or party on the beach with Carl Cox, number one. So, yeah. I mean, he's an expensive DJ, rightly so. Mm. Uh, he's done a lot. Um, and to get that kind of a license, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. And now we're talking about things like COVID insurance as well. And there's all these extra costs because they're doing COVID testing on site. Yeah. So there's a lot of extra costs there too. Now, 
I agree with the COVID testing before you you go to a public gathering. I, I one thing about the illegal uh, raves and things like that, I'm sure they're not doing that. So that is oh, something no. I raise a bit of an eyebrows at. But I don't raise my eyebrow at really illegal raves in general. If they're in a space where there's they're not bothering people and they're not like, you know, near residential homes and they're just kind of out in the field. And, and you know, in a public space, not in yeah. And this property. one was go out in the it. field. Go for it. Yeah, it go was for out in the field. I think it's great. I mean, people want to party. People have always wanted to party since we were Homo sapiens. We wanted to gather and celebrate and dance and sing and play instruments. This is a human need and it's a human right. Um, if we could do it safely, wonderful. That, that that's what we really need to do because we need to think about how people in our industry and i'm not just talking about the djs and musicians i'm talking about all the people that make these events happen the sound companies the people the bar staff the security this the lighting people i mean this is a huge industry nightlife is a massive industry here in the uk music is one of our biggest cultural exports and um but is it is it considered colleen is it considered an industry do people, do politicians see it as an the, industry? The Tony Blair government did. They were really courting musicians and trying to make themselves look cool. And they had, you know, Noel Gallagher and the Britpop people over, over to number 10 Downing Street, to, you know, for a reception. It was a smart move, really, because they were trying to get younger people's support. And mm -hmm. they were also, even if it was superficially, trying to recognize the importance of music culture in the UK. Don't forget, we had the British invasion in the 1960s with the Beatles and all the other kind of beat groups. We had the second British invasion when I was a teenager in yeah. America with all the, the, the pop groups from Britain and you know new wave groups and post-punk groups. And um, it's, it's been a massive cultural export. But I think the my answer to the question is a Tory government doesn't recognize it that way, but the labor government in general has. You are obviously emerging from a relatively restrictive situation as far as nightlife is concerned. Has it been more difficult for you to get jobs, to compete for jobs, uh, or are people looking far enough into the future where they say, okay, you know what, Colleen, uh, I want I want to book you for Christmas Eve. At this point. I haven't gotten any Christmas ones. We have some November ones. Everything is constantly shifting. I had eight festivals in August. Now it's down to six because two mm. have canceled. I don't have any indoor events lined up uh, until October, which then again, I they could all move. I've had to be a very good Buddhist. I did study some Buddhism. <laughs> I, I don't really define myself as a Buddhist, but lately I have, it's accepting change. We've all thought like, we can't think too much further than two weeks ahead, you know, that's the way it kind of is. You know, and in terms of getting work, I mean, I, I've always, I've never pursued a career to chase money or fame. I've always loved music, opportunities arose and I keep my head down and I work hard and I just love what I do. I absolutely mm. love what I do. And it really rang true when the whole pandemic started. All of a sudden I thought I had to close classic album Sundays because all of our events were canceled. 
all of my DJ gigs for my self-employment side, that was all canceled. And I sat there with like a rabbit in headlights going, oh my gosh, what do I do? What I did is I ended up doing a lot of stuff for free for people. So classic album Sundays, we started doing uh, live classic album sessions mm -hmm. on um, Facebook and people loved it. Every Sunday night, we had stuff going out three times a week live. All my hosts around the world were, were joining in. We're doing it for free just to give people some solace, some musical entertainment and education. And then I'm able to broadcast from my home live uh, on Worldwide FM. And I was doing a radio show every week. A lot of them request shows involving people. That's all for free as well. That plus I was also hosting some Cosmodelica house parties from my home with loads of cameras and visual effects and Zoom party going on at the same time, again, mm -hmm. for free. And it's something, and I realized I love this anyways. I, I, I don't do this just for a financial gain. Of course, I need to make a living. And yeah. I don't want to go out and get a proper job. So I got to make my own way. You know, I got to make my own way. But it's not, it's, it's a, you know, it's a modest living. You know, I've never gotten rich, but that's fine. I'm happy with my life. I have a very nice life. And because I was so visible uh, in the last year, I mean, I did, I did 130 radio shows and events on camera in one year and about 150 pieces of content wow. in one year. So, that so you was, kept busy. Was, I kept busy. And it's not necessarily that I had money going into my own pocket. I, I got through it. Um, and I expect I'm going to have more to get through because I don't see things completely opening up. I'm hoping next year it will be will be in a better situation. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, is building communities with Balearic Breakfast, it's a big family that listens around the world. We hook up on my Mixcloud Live and Twitch TV and people are talking. And, you know, my Cosmodelica house party on Mixcloud had over 2000 people there. I mean, people were coming in. Sure. Worldwide FM, we're getting over a million listeners a month right now. Um, and we're so it's these, this community kind of building, uh, which is really important to me. And of course, this was important to our friend David Mancuso as well. Sure. I mean, I might be doing it virtually online right now because I have to. Um, but those types of things, I think people took note and, you know, my audience grew. And because of that, I've been getting a lot of offers to play Only here in the UK, not traveling yet. Not traveling UK, yet. Yeah. Um, you were in the forefront of people aggressively advocating for the inclusion of more female disc jockeys mm. in uh, parties, in indoor venues, in wherever. Uh, and you said that it's changed a little bit, huh? Because you said at one time, you know, they'd have an obligatory single female disc jockey in a roster of maybe 10 to 15 people. Mm -hmm. That's changed. Tell us how, and, and you really did play a central role in it, no? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I did any overt political activism in terms of petitions or anything. I would just share posts and I think my presence, you know, I started started DJing as when I was 14. Mm -hmm. um, I think professionally where you actually get paid in the late 80s. So I was after people like in New York, like Sharon White and Susan Morabito and um, a, a, a few others. They were, they were definitely the forefront. Uh, and then I was probably the next generation 
and really kind of made a name more in the 1990s. And at that time, you know, every now and then they'd have these female DJ nights. I only did one. And then I said, I'm not going to do anymore. It was me and Jeannie Hopper together. And okay. I was like, we don't need to be called female DJ night, you know? Um, and so I've always felt it's better to lead by example, you know? And mm -hmm. for instance, sometimes I've done, I've had my own nights and I have booked women, but I don't call it female DJ night. It's just another night. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another night. Just happens to be females, you know, playing the music. But yeah, it was quite shocking. I, there was other people who were doing a lot more overt political activism than myself. Um, and they would take a festival flyer or poster and they would blank, blank out all the uh, non-female act names. And you might see out of a hundred acts, one female act or two female acts, but even including musicians, I'm not even just saying just DJs. And it's shocking. I mean, it was absolutely shocking. And when you see it that way, and I think with the whole kind of movement towards inclusivity on all fronts, not just gender, but race, sexual orientation, um, gender as well, uh, um, that it's really been spotlighted. It's still... So, so now some promoters are actually saying, you know what? I mean, if you take a look at the world, is it roughly 50%, you know, female, 50%? Slightly more there's female. Also, yeah, there's also non-binary and other ways that people identify their gender too. So I'm just making yeah. an oversimplification right now. But yeah, at least 50% female in the, in the entire world. You know, how do you represent that culturally as well? And some promoters, very progressive ones, are saying we're just doing 50-50% now. It should be representative of our own kind of culture. Um, and so but I it, does that this. mean that there are uh, opportunities for younger female yes. DJs to it's make wonderful. inroads? Wonderful. There's so many younger female DJs who I love and I play with. Um, and I'm thinking of people, well, like Barbie Bertish in uh, New York, along with Laura Murata in New York, over here in the UK, Tina Edwards, Mafalda, Donna Leake, Snow, loads of them. Oh, a great one in the Netherlands, Laura Kama. I mean, I'm just naming a few off the top of my head who are friends of mine. And yeah, it's it's been really interesting, the kind of support they've been given very early on in their career, which I, I hugely applaud. I think it's wonderful. I have a 16-year-old daughter. You know, she may end up in music as well. Hopefully not as a DJ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to dissuade her from that. Um, but, you know, it's wonderful to think that she may have opportunities and be given the, the level of support that I, I really didn't have access to. I had support from individuals. Absolutely. Mm. Like, like David Mancuso, like Francois Kevorkian. Um, they really supported my career very early on. And because they're so respected and recognized, that, of course, helped me. I mean, I also had a, a radio show in New York, too, which was which was quite WNYU, right? Yeah. On 89.1, I had Soul School and Club 89. And they were very big shows for the underground dance community in the New York tri-state area. So that that obviously really helped. And working at dance tracks as well. Where, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So that really I had a certain level of visibility because of the different things that I was doing. 
Um, but you know, you kind of had to just put your head down, work hard and hope things were offered to you, you know, mm-hmm. now females tend to demand, they'll demand equal pay. I never did. Never really? negotiate. I never negotiated with money. I, I was really bad at doing it for myself. I could do it for classic album Sundays. Cause that's a business, mm-hmm. but if it's about me, I'm terrible. So that's why I have, well, my husband's my, my manager. <laughs> he does the dirty work. Yeah, well, he drives a hard bargain, I imagine. He does, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's hard. I can't, I have a hard time advocating for myself. And it's something that I've had to learn to do. I mean, I understand that I have to do social media. I do it reluctantly in some ways. Although in other ways, I've kind of grown to like it because I'm able to converse with people. Mm-hmm. I think especially in the last year, because it is about community for me as well, whether it's sure. the Cosmodelica one, the Balearic Breakfast one, the Loft community, the Lucky Cloud community, Classic Album Sundays community. It is about community building. And I've always considered myself, I don't really define myself necessarily as a DJ. It is one of the things that I do. I have many musical hats, but the thing that I really, if I had to look at all the different musical hats that I, I wear and have worn, I think the two things that unify it are musical education and curation. And I've never been a fame chaser. I understand that I have to have a certain level, a certain audience to be able to make a living. I I get that. But I haven't pulled stunts or, you know, overly self-promoted myself. You know, I have to, I have, I have to do a certain level of promotion of what I do so people can know about it. Sure. But it's, it's not a me, 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 me situation, you know? And um, yeah, I think a lot of that is from David, but I was like that before I met him, which is probably one of the reasons why we bonded so well. <laughs> Cause you know, I asked him, you know, but he asked me to play records with him. It was after, right after I met him, he had come up to my radio show. I want to say it's like 1993. You know, here I am like 25 years old. You know, I know nothing about the Koetsus. I, I had studied sound at NYU. So I knew about the recording side and was, was producing and, and engineering stuff already at that time for, for syndicated radio shows. But I didn't know about the Koetsus and how you handle all that. And, you know, the, the, you know, I was still, a novice in that style of music as well. Let you people know, know what Koetsus are. Yeah, oh yeah, oh. Koetsus are moving coil cartridges that are handcrafted in Japan. And a moving coil cartridge is, is highly sensitive in terms of it responds better to the music and, and can kind of emit different frequencies and get get a better response to the music and, and, and the playback. It gives a more musical sound, but they're very, very sensitive. So if you even backspin a bit, you could break the stylus tip. I mean, you can do a lot of damage. You have to have a very steady hand. And, you know, David taught me what to do while we were playing records. But my point is, is many years later, when he was coming over here, like four times a year, we were in my garden. And I said, I just need to ask you, why did you even let me play records with you. I was only 25. I, at that time, I didn't know anything about Koetsus. I was, you know, getting into that kind of music. I'd been into loads of other kinds of music before working in record shops and stuff, but I was still relatively a novice in that, in that area. And he said, it starts with a vibe long before you hit the turntable. And I guess what I'm trying to say is he understood it wasn't, I was shocked 
when he asked me. I never felt in that sense of entitlement. I think being a female as well, there was no sense of entitlement. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it, it never even occurred to me I might be able to make a, 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 you know, have a vocation doing this. You know, it was just like I'll just put my head down, do my best, and things kind of arose. You know, yeah. David asked me to do this. Francois asked me to play a body and soul or whatever put my head down, you know, just, just, just do it. I was asked to work at dance track. So everything I had done, it had been asked to do. I had never put myself That's out great. there. That yeah, it was, great. it was great. But, you know, I realized now, what if I had asked? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would have happened? But, you know, it's fine. I'm, I'm happy. I'm really happy with my life, as I said. So everything, I think. That's the most important the part, being yeah, happy with your life. Um, but I want to thank you so much for spending Aww. the time uh, because this has been, I think, for, for my audience, a very informative conversation about what you do and perhaps the future of nightlife. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for the future of nightlife. Fingers crossed. And just everybody, please try to stay as safe and sound. And, you know, if you're throwing parties, please try to do them as safely and as ethically as possible so that we can continue nightlife in the future. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. If you think you've been getting a lot more unsolicited recorded phone calls lately, you are not alone. On average, and get this, Americans are getting 15 such calls a month, which works out to an astonishing 5.1 billion calls a year. How have they been able to increase so rapidly? Technology is at the root of it. Ever heard of a voice over internet protocol or VoIP? Me neither, but it allows a single computer to make thousands of calls an hour. Some of these robocalls are trying to sell you something. Irritating, but you don't have to buy. And you can hang up at the first hint of a pitch. There are other robocalls, however, that are straight up scams. They're trying to get you to part with enough personal information to let them access your bank account. Some even threaten you with arrest. If you don't go straight to the bank, withdraw money and send it to them. I'm serious. They also have a way to get around caller ID and make you think, for example, that your bank is calling you to alert you to fraud on your account. A call directly to your bank before you engage anyone like that will tell you if they're legit. And believe it or not, help is on the way. According to an article in The Independent, the FCC is requiring phone companies to refuse traffic not listed in the robocall mitigation database. This will at least tell you that the call is coming from the caller's actual number. That goes into effect September 28th. In the meantime, people can stop answering calls from numbers they don't know. And I gotta tell you, a lot of people I talk to, and of course my information is anecdotal, and I, I wanna put that right down front. It is anecdotal, but People have stopped answering calls from numbers they do not recognize. Happening more and more. Of course, if you do pick up, 
Avoid answering any questions, especially those that require a yes answer. Also, most phones have a way to silence unknown calls and send them directly to voicemail. I did not know this. Both Android and iPhones have within their nomenclature a way to do this. There will be scammers or just plain telemarketers who, by hook or by crook, will spoil your day by calling at an inopportune time. That's because, either way, it's enormously profitable for them. Telemarketers even have lobbying groups that push back against advocacy groups trying to better regulate these calls. Suing scammers doesn't usually even work. Unless you're an IT whiz and want to engage scammers just for fun, the simplest thing to do is just use your phone to block numbers not on your contact list. That way, if you truly do want to respond to a number you don't know, all you have to do is listen to your voicemail. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.